Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. Have your Bibles. Join me, First Kings, chapter nineteen. Or if you have your mobile devices, First Kings, chapter nineteen. We're going to pick up in verse three. We're going to read verses three and four, and then we're going to jump down to verse eight, and we're going to read through verse fourteen. We're in week three, same God, where we are tracing God's movement uh, through mountaintop. And valley experiences. First Kings chapter 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 3 says, Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. Any of you feel like you're running for your life this morning? And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat underneath a broom tree. He asked that he might die, saying, enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. And then verse 8. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altar, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life, and they want to take it away. And the word of the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And then behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore through the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice. It came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I am very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, 
Even I alone am left, and I seek, and they seek to take my life. There's this scene, the story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, where the disciples, they are out on a boat in the middle of a lake, and out of nowhere, I mean, they didn't see it coming. On the horizon, it, it comes so quickly that they could barely brace themselves, more or less prepare. The storm falls upon them, almost like falling directly above from the sky. It produces waves and wind, the thundering of lightning and the crashing of all the elements around. And they say to themselves, what are we going to do? And the storm, it just seems to be increasing in ferocity as well as in magnitude. They begin to yell at it. They begin to to blame one another, blame their situation, blame anybody, everybody but, but themselves in this moment. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're cursing the storm. You ever been there? Find yourself in a storm, and you yell, and you scream, you curse, and you blame. But I want you to contrast it with this image. On the same boat, in the same circumstance, the same condition, the same environment, the same moment in history... While they are frantically rowing and screaming and yelling and cursing and blaming, Scripture tells us that Jesus is at the back of the boat, as Mark's gospel tells us, with his head on a pillow, sleeping. So they frantically go to him. They shake him, wake up. Do you not see what is happening all around us? Are you indifferent to the storm that is impacting us? The waves, the wind, the lightning, the thunder. If you don't do something, we're going to die. Have you ever been there? Find yourself in a season, in a storm. You know the promises of God that he is for you, that he is with you, that he will not abandon you. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's sovereign, he's good. But your circumstances, your condition, they're not good. Do something. They plead. And almost inconvenient, almost inconvenience, Jesus stands and he says, In the strongest imperative in the original language, quiet down. And immediately, the waves, the wind, the storm, it calms. As well as the fretted nerves of everybody in that boat. Do you ever think to yourself that maybe Jesus was talking to more than the storm that day? Maybe he was talking to the disciples just as much as he was was talking to 
the storm. In my life, I most, most of the time, I manufacture the storms that are produced that wreak havoc in my life. I create turbulence. It's at my hand, my wheel. I create it, and at the same time, I hate it. At the same time, I produce it, I create it, at least I contribute to it, I curse it. I blame others. I yell, I scream, and I ask Jesus, where are you in the midst of this storm? And could it be that his words to the disciples that day are his words to you and to me today? Quiet down. Church, why do we hate silence? Why do we wage, rage war against silence? Why do we work so hard to produce noise? All the while in each and every one of us, there is an inner sanctuary that if we do not choke it out, if we will lean into the silence, maybe there we will hear the voice of God. How do we do that? What does that look like for us? Well, maybe to get a better answer, we need to start at the beginning where we began this morning, 1 Kings. So let's, let's take a step back. Let's fill in some of the gaps, and then let's, let's move a little bit forward. In 1 Kings, what we see is that Israel, they have been in a famine for three and a half years. There has been no rain. This was an agricultural community. So rain to this community is what the Dow Jones is to ours. When the Dow Jones, when it begins to plummet, die, people start worrying about their retirement. And after three and a half years with famine where there has been no rain, crops are dying, livestock, they're dying, people are sick, and they are dying, and they are becoming unsettled, and they're becoming angry. They realize the storm that is before them, and they are yelling, they are cursing, they are screaming, and they're blaming others. Particularly, they're blaming the president and the first lady. You see, the king of this time, his name is Ahab, and Ahab, he is in the grips of a king named Baal, which makes sense because this was an agricultural community. And Baal was the god of the storm. They believed in this culture that the clouds, that was Baal's entourage. And between the clouds, where there was blue sky, that was the windows of his palace in which he, when he wanted to bless, would allow rain to pass through. 
And Ahab, he is neck deep. He has turned the entire country, the, high, the entire culture against Yahweh, the one true God. In leading, he has said, Baal is our God. But Baal has done nothing for them. And the people are getting unsettled. Elijah, scripture tells us, is asleep. And a voice comes to him, says, get up. Go present yourself to Ahab, and I'm going to make it rain. So scripture says that Elijah from a distance lays eyes on Ahab, and Ahab sees Elijah from a distance, and he says, Is that you, you troublemaker? Have you come to inflict more harm upon us than you already have? Elijah, he's a fiery prophet. You would like him. He spits back to Ahab, this trouble is not by my hand. This trouble, it is by yours. You created this storm. You turned your back on God. And you led the whole country to follow Baal. And Baal hasn't done anything for you. We haven't seen rain in three and a half years. And Elijah continues, I pose to you a competition, a test. You go home, get 450 of your priests and prophets that follow and worship Baal. Bring them back. Let's build two altars. Let's take two calves. Let's sacrifice them. And let's ask, you ask your God, Baal, and I'll ask my God, Yahweh, to set the altar ablaze. And whoever produces fire on the altar, that's the true God. Baal thinks to himself, what do I have to lose? So he goes home and he gets two calves. He gets the 450 priests and prophets of Baal. And he brings them all to the valley. And Elijah says, You pick what cow you want, I'll take the leftover. And because I'm a gentleman, you go first. So scripture says, 6 a.m. in the morning, they slaughter the calf and they spread it out on this altar that they had built. They start yelling and screaming and praying and dancing and pleading, bell. Come down and show yourself. Set this altar ablaze. Elijah, I told you you'd like him. He starts trash talking. He says, why don't you sing a little louder? Maybe he can't hear you. Dance a little bit more. Become a little bit more undignified. Maybe you haven't garnered his attention yet. One translation says that he says, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on vacation. No, no, wait a minute. Maybe he's using the bathroom. I told you you would like him. So the prophets, 
for 10 hours. The pastors, the priests, the prophets of Baal, they scream, they dance, they yell, they pray, they plead, they beg, they worship. But Baal doesn't do anything. Eventually, they begin to take their sword and cut themselves, bleeding all over the altar. And then Elijah steps up and says, here, hold my cheer wine, it's my turn. He steps forward and he looks to the sky and he tells the servants, go get three jars of water, get me 12 stones representing each tribe of Israel and they stack these stones one on the other. They lay the calf there and they take three jars of water and they pour over the rocks and the wood and the calf saturating the altar. Elijah looks up, digs a trench around and says, go get three more jars of water. They bring back, and remember, what is the greatest commodity of this time in their economy? Water. You know they're mad. They're watching. They're watching this crazy prophet pour out that that is most valuable to them on the ground. That could save people. That could grow crops. My livestock could live with that water. Elijah says, go get three more. He's risking it all. Scripture says that the trench around the altar fills up. The wood, the rock, the calf, it is all saturated. Elijah steps forward again and he looks up and he says, Yahweh, do what only you can do. This is not about me. This is not through my power. This is only through my cooperation, through faithful obedience. I am here because you led me here. I am saying what you would have me say. You spoke and I am doing. But would you bring fire? And scripture tells us that fire fell on that altar. And scripture says that even the dirt caught on fire. I didn't know that dirt could burn, but it does, and it did. Scripture says that then Elijah turns to the 450 pastors, priests, and prophets of Baal and says, y'all are going on a field trip. He sends them all down to the river, and there they are executed. And Elijah said, Baal, worship, it is over. And then Scripture says that almost as if he was exhausted, Elijah falls, he retreats back. Servant comes in and asks him, are you okay, sir? I thought you would be celebrating. And Elijah said, would you do something? Go outside of the tent. Look up at the sky 
and report back to me what you see. So the servant went outside the tent, looked up and came back and said, Elijah, there's nothing but blue skies as far as the eye can see. Elijah said, maybe you missed something. Go check again. Servant goes out, looks up, comes back, nothing. Elijah just now poured out nine jars of water. He's thinking, I might not survive this after all. But surely, if God can light the altar on fire, he can also make it, make it rain. There is a taste of hope, a glimpse, a silver lining. Go back out and check again, Elijah instructs. There's nothing there, Elijah. Seven times, Elijah sends the servant out to check the sky. On the seventh time, he comes back. There's nothing. I don't see anything. Almost void of hope, depressed, broken. I think the servant could see it in Elijah's eyes, in his posture, in his position. So he says, well, on the horizon, I mean, it's, it's a long ways off. You got to squint to see it. There's a singular cloud in the sky. And it's a little bit darker than the others. But Elijah, I'm going to tell you, this cloud, it's, it's about the size of a man's fist. Elijah perks up and a big smile stretches across his face. He comes out of the tent with a little bit of a spring and a step. He looks at Ahab and says, you better hitch up your horses and your wagons and your chariots. The bottom's about to fall out. Elijah is making a proclamation on a promise that God had made. And Ahab's response back is, the prophet might have won the battle, but he has lost his mind. And about the time he says those words, a raindrop falls from the sky, hitting Ahab in the tip of the nose. And by the time he hitched up his chariot, the bottom fell out, and it was pouring rain. Ahab is rushing back to the city, but Elijah already beats him there. And you would think that all of Israel would break out in revival. God has been good on his promise. But that's not what happened. Ahab is married to a ferocious, terrible woman named Jezebel. You ever notice how we never name our daughters Jezebel? There's a reason for that. If your name's Jezebel, I'm sorry. Take that up with your mama and your daddy, all right? I had nothing to do with it. Ahab tells Jezebel. Jezebel, this is an important reality. She was the head prophetess, the head priest of, of all the 450 that had just been slaughtered. She doesn't know yet. 
So Ahab scratches his head and says, Jezebel, you're not going to believe what I saw today. That crazy old prophet, he threw down a challenge. He double-dog dared me, so I had to engage. And Baal, he was a no-show. But Yahweh, he caught the altar on fire. Even the dirt burned Jezebel. You wouldn't believe it. It was a sight to behold. I had never seen anything like it. And then the rain came. Did I mention to you that all your prophets, all of your pastors, all of your priests, your entire council, they're dead. And Jezebel said, what happened? Well, that prophet, Elijah, he had them all killed. So Jezebel said, you tell that old prophet that by this time tomorrow, he will be as dead as those pastors, priests, and prophets. So word gets to Elijah the Jezebel has called in the Navy SEAL 16. And by a decree of the queen, she wants his head. And you would think that after Elijah had seen God's power and his promise and his goodness and his presence, and he would have no worries, no fears. But Elijah's like a lot of you. Elijah's like me. We see God's faithfulness, his power, his authority, his blessing, his love, his grace, his mercy. But in the storm, we have a tendency to forget. And Elijah, gripped by fear, heads out to the wilderness. He is depressed. He is broken. He is fearful. He is anxious. He is scared to death. Have you ever been there? Have you ever received the news? Been in the storm? Elijah, all he wants to do is sleep. He doesn't want to get out of bed. And while he's sleeping, God sends a message, a voice. Scripture says it was the word of the Lord. Sends it to a man who doesn't want to have a conversation with God, about God, God speaks in spite of the anxiousness, the fear, the betrayal, the brokenness, the sadness. The conversation goes like this. Elijah's sleeping and the voice, get up. Elijah says, I don't want to get up. Get up, I said. I don't want to get up. Eat. I don't want to eat. You got to eat. You're going to need the strength 
for where I am about to send you. It's as if the voice knows where Elijah is about to go. And as if a thief in the night came in under the darkness and laid beside Elijah meat and bread and drink. So Elijah eats and the voice reveals Even in the sadness, even in the anxiety, even in the fear, even in the brokenness. You're going to Mount Horab. Mount Horab. If Elijah's going to find his courage, it's going to be on Mount Horab. Do you remember Mount Horab? Oh, Elijah would remember the stories. You may have heard it called Mount Sinai. You see, Mount Horeb was where the finger of God scribed the Ten Commandments, giving them to Moses. Mount Horeb is where Moses took the staff and penetrated the rock and water came forward, giving drink to the entire nation of Israel who had yet become a nation. Mount Horeb is where fire fell from heaven and the clouds billowed like smoke. Now Horeb, that's that's where Moses saw God. He came off the mountain glowing like a candle in a dark room. So Elijah journeys up the mountain. And he finds himself, much like Moses, in, in, the, in a cave. And he thinks, how am I going to hear from God? God promised he would walk by. And a wind, a hurricane wind, 140 mile an hour wind, came blowing by so ferociously that stones broke into. The Bible says that that's not where the voice of God was. And then the earth shook beneath his feet and he thought, this is just like Moses. Now I'm going to hear the voice of God. This has got to be his presence in the earthquake. The Bible says that that's not where the voice of God came. And then fire in the form of lightning fell from the sky. But that's not how God spoke either. And then the Bible uses these two Hebrew words. One inferring sound while the other can be translated as silence. One translation says it's a still small voice. Another translation says it was a murmuring sound. But those are all bad translations. It literally means that God spoke in the silence. Why do we hate silence so much? Why do we come into these four walls every Sunday Begging God to speak, believing that we're going to hear his voice in the worship or in the preaching or in the serving 
or in the teaching? Why do we believe that we're going to hear the voice of God on the mission field in, the, in between the clanging and the banging of the hammer? God at times will speak to you in and through the worship. God at times will speak to you in and through the preaching or through that teaching or through the serving or on the mission field or in the book. But more times than not, God longs to speak to you in the silence. But we do battle against the silence. And we scratch our head and we blame and we curse and we scream and we yell when we experience the storm and we ask God, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't hear you in the worship. I don't hear you in the preaching. I don't hear you in the teaching because the storm is so loud, and God is saying, you will hear me in the silence. So then how do we create silence? How do we lean into the silence? How do we embrace the silence? How do we stop warring with silence? For me, I can't use you because I don't know you, but for me, I have to structure, intentionally structure silence in my life. So I start in reflection. Every day, sometime in the day, often at the same time, I will pick one of six or seven places that I can hear from God. Sometimes it's at home in my chair, in my office. Sometimes it's sitting right there in a pitch black sanctuary. Sometimes it's in my office. Sometimes it's in my kitchen around my table. And sometimes I will go somewhere And I will just know that I can't hear from God here. And I'll have to get up and I'll have to find that place. And when I find that place, I get still. I don't kneel. I don't crouch. I don't get on my face. I just sit in silence. And if you are like me, In these moments, my mind starts waging war. And I start thinking about all the conversations I have to have, all the emails I need to respond to. I start going through the calendar in my head. I start thinking about what I said the day before and what was said to me. It's like these demons attack me. In that moment, and I have to do war against them. And I do that through scripture meditation. I will quote 
John 3.16, or I'll reflect on Psalm 23, or I'll think of an old hymn or a worship song, and I will begin in my mind to process it. And this is allowing me to come disentangled from all the worries, all the anxiety, all the pressures of the to-do list. And when I'm there, I will begin to pray. I don't bring a list with me. If I'm sitting there, I will actually see a lot of your faces because a lot of you sit in the exact same place every week. So if the Lord brings you to my attention, to my mind, to my heart, I will pray for you. I always begin, God, praying for our church. In the busyness, what are we missing that you are up to? If I tell you, I will pray for you, I will pray for you. I'm not saying that in a way of saying, get away from me. I don't have time for you. It's in this moment that I pray for you. I intercede for you. I go to God and I beg on your behalf. I plead on your behalf, your cause. And if I don't believe or agree in your cause, then I will pray for God's cause for you. And if and when that is revealed to me, I will call you or text you or email you or grab a hold of you in the hall and say, I was praying for you and God spoke to me and this is what God said. After I pray. I go into a state of readiness, preparedness, where I will examine my physical body because I have realized that my body is the revealer of much of the dysfunction that causes many of the storms in my life. So I will start with my eyes. Luke, are you looking? Are you seeing things that are not God glorifying, exalting, or honoring. I will then go to my mind. Are you ruminating? Are you thinking? Is your thoughts, are they edifying? Are they glorifying? Are they good? And then I will go to my mouth, my tongue. Are you speaking truth in love? Are the words you speak to others honoring and glorifying and exalting and edifying? And then to my heart, are you bitter, hard-hearted? Are you sad? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? And then from my heart to my feet, are you taking your next steps? Are you growing? Are you leading well? And then when I am done, I'm done. And I will repeat the same strategy structure day after day. And more times than not, it is in this moment, these moments, that God speaks. And it is not in the earthquake. It is not in the lightning. It is not in the wind. It is in the silence that I hear most from God. I know what you're thinking. Luke, I don't have a moment 
it must be nice to be a pastor that you can actually plan that and structure that. I don't have a mom. I can't even sit on the toilet without a kid around my ankles, banging on the door. In love, in all due respect, we do what we value. And if you can scroll social media and watch hours of countless mindless videos or binge watch Netflix or whatever it is, you can carve out this time. Sometimes for me, it's five minutes. Sometimes it's an hour. Church, if you want to hear from God, you have to stop demanding and requiring that he speaks your language. And instead, you have to become familiar and fluent and comfortable in his. And oftentimes, that is in the silence. Would you bow your heads? Father God, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, for your presence. God, as we intentionally in this moment create some silence, would you speak to us? Father, is there anything in us that is not of you? May we see it. May we grieve it. May we confess it. May we repent of it. Father, may this become the rhythm of our life. Your servants are here. Will you speak? Father, we love you. We thank you. It is in your strong, precious, and sufficient name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.